Doesn't get any better than that. God breathes on you, breathe back the doxology, praising him, and now we jump into God's word in Mark, the gospel of Mark. We're starting a new series in the gospel of Mark, and today, new beginnings, new beginnings and good news. Good news about the king. The king is coming. He's being announced. He has come, and with him, he brings a new kind of kingdom, and that should really matter to us. It doesn't matter to us in the sense that we flee this world and put our head in the sand and push all pain and suffering away, nor, nor does it matter to us in the sense that we just kind of compromise and, you know, go along with the river, but that we are in the world and not of it with Jesus as our one and true king. Now, I was thinking about warring, warring kings and kingdoms, warring tribes, something that would have been much more common to the folks living at this time in the ancient Near East. And I think, you know, for lack of a better analogy, the closest we can get in our own day is basically football. Like football, the NFL. You have a deep sense of loyalty to your team. You rejoice when they rejoice and you feel the pain when they lose. Now, look, I'm not one of those preachers that does a lot of sports illustrations, so I don't want to hear any complaints. And you may be sitting there going, well, I don't even, I'm not even interested in sports ball. Okay, well, that, that's fine. But know this, most of the world is. In fact, in the last year, 45 out of the 50 most viewed uh, t- television shows were football games. It's a big deal. I mean, people get fired up. They tailgate. You know, some of you have been known to put on some face paint. People in the church don't know that, but it's true. And yesterday's two games, you know, this kind of divisional round of the playoffs, I mean, two shockers, two surprises, two, two amazing endings for kings and kingdoms warring that we didn't expect. In fact, I think it's the first time in, in the history of the game that two teams have basically won their game on a low score in the last five seconds with a field goal. And I'm sure some of us are praying this morning for the, the humble, humble Aaron Rodgers. Lord, be with Aaron. Bless him. Bless his heart. Of course, we're always, you know, doing the hashtag thoughts and prayers for the Cowboys. That's just an ongoing prayer request, as we know. Uh, but if you know me and a bit of my background and my story, you may know that my entire family for generations, back to when they came over from, you know, the old country in Bavaria, is from Buffalo, New York. Ah, to be a Bills fan, to truly suffer. In fact, when I was growing up in Albuquerque, you get to kind of pick your team, and I said, Dad, should I be a Bills fan? No, 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 please, please don't do that. You know, go with the Broncos. Go with someone where there's, you know, a little bit of hope. And during those growing up years for me in the 90s, you remember those are tough years. The Bills, the only team that has been to the Super Bowl four times and never won. And so as, you know, the Bills are gearing up today, warring tribes, conflicting kingdoms to play the Chiefs, the clear, you know, d- designation between good and evil, you know who to root for. The, the question among, you know, Bills fans in Western New York is simply this, dare we dream again? Dare we dream? And, and, and the answer is an emphatic, no, don't do that. You, you, you'll only get hurt. Why? Because even though we love our, our teams, uh, they're not reliable. And you can see the sort of thing you saw yesterday. You just don't know what's going to happen amongst the warring tribes and kings and kingdoms of the world. Mark would have us know 
That's just not the way it is with Jesus. That's just not the way it is with Jesus. For you, in your life, in the challenges you're going through right now, the stuff that no one else knows, the stuff that you would maybe never dare say in church, the real suffering, the real loss, the real grief, the real ups and the downs, it's just not that way with Jesus. He's not one of, you know, many kings on the battlefield hoping that at the end of the day, he walks away with the victor's spoils. And so Mark is, is working hard to show us the revelation of the Father through the Son by the Spirit that there's a new king and kingdom on the scene. We have our, our tribal allegiances. We paint our faces. But God is doing a new thing with a greater king for the whole world. So as I studied Mark this last week, I have to say I'm just really excited to get into this book with you. It's, it's fast-paced. It's 16 chapters. It's three major movement acts, if you w- would understand it that way. Jesus in Galilee, moving down through Judea, teaching, doing miracles, and eventually his passion and his suffering in Jerusalem. But the whole book is about the unfolding disclosure of who is this new king. It's also undergirded with a question. As each and every person interacts with Jesus, what will you make of my son? What will you do with this new king and his claims? Who is he to you? Do you believe? Because everyone believes in something. There are no unreligious human beings. Everyone is a worshiper. The only question is, what do you worship? What is the object of your faith? Where do you put your trust? Not if you're putting your trust in something. Mark makes it all about Jesus, our victorious Lord, the King of the universe, who is also near to us in his mercy and who in his power and nearness confronts us that we might simply ask, how now shall we live? Now, who's Mark? Who wrote this gospel? It's a good question. Mark was not one of the 12. We're most likely here referring to John Mark. John Mark was a contemporary of Peter. He spent a good bit of time with Paul. You can read a little bit of his story in Acts chapter 12 and 13. He's in Acts 15. He's at the end of 2 Timothy. Mark continues to show up as a a faithful servant of Christ throughout the development of the early church in the first century. But beyond all those things, Mark is a man on a mission. He's been saved. He's been saved. The king has come. All the longing, all the need, all the want has been answered in the Son of God put on flesh, died for sins, and rose again to conquer death. And he knows it. He doesn't just know it in an abstract way or, you know, he has a sense of it. He felt it. He felt it because he climbed to the top of the hill and aligned his crystals properly and lit the right candle. No, he knows it. He's seen it. He's experienced it in history and in his own life. And his mission is that the people who need Jesus, especially the lowly and the downtrodden and the broken, would know that on offer to them is a good and loving king who, although may turn them from things that kill and destroy death and sin, will never turn them from those things to nothing but to himself and to the power and the warmth of the embrace of one who really can save, who is reliable, who never fails. I feel like that's exactly what our our world always needs. 
You know, we're on this side of the cross, but on this side of heaven, the now and the not yet. Most of you in this room believe in Jesus, so you are truly sons and daughters of God. You are not worms, okay? You are sons and daughters of the king. But like Paul, Romans 7, we still struggle with the flesh and the spirit. We still struggle to put off the old man and put on the new. And so we need the gospel. Right now in 2020, as much as we've ever needed it, our world desperately needs it. You know, an unending, seemingly eternal recurrence of trying to put your trust and your hope in new kings and new kingdoms that inevitably make promises that they don't keep and fail. So much so that we're often backed into a corner feeling like, okay, well then I've got to take care of me. I've got to be my own king. We know that doesn't work either. You know, I don't want to be naive about these things, but uh, some of you in this room have been following, you know, a a little bit the situation that's unfolding right now in, in Ukraine. A little bit of saber rattling, you got Russia, you got Ukraine, you know, Q proxy war number 342. Um, I I know just enough about that to get myself in a lot of trouble. So how about I say nothing about it? Except this. I'm just like, can't we all get along? I mean, we're just coming out of a pandemic for goodness sake. Give these people some time to breathe. Can we just not invade anyone for a little bit? I don't mean us or them. I mean anybody. Can we just, can everybody just hold back and let Ukraine do their thing? Let's all, you know. Can't we work it out? Can't, maybe we just put a McDonald's here and there and everywhere and we won't invade each other. I don't know. And yet the need that we face in 2022 was the same need that they faced in the days of John the Baptist and Jesus. A new king and a new kingdom that was better and truer and forever. Because people are on edge right now. Low-grade anxiety, they're angry. They're worse at driving than they've ever been, which in this city is, you know, Jesus, take the wheel. They're going to yell at you in the grocery store. Everybody's just like a hair's breadth away because their kings and kingdoms have been challenged. And sadly, I think it's good for us to, you know, to make this an issue of self-reference, to allow ourselves to be in this story as well, to, to be honest with Jesus about our functional saviors, our false kings and kingdoms. We are, as it were, I am, infected by, you know, our own preferences and consumerism. And so it is hard. It's a miracle. It's a miracle of the Spirit when God would give us a church, and He has given us this church, where where we have people of diverse opinions, people of diverse backgrounds, people who don't agree on all the same things on those secondary issues. I know it's hard to believe, but even people that have different political opinions... I mean, we would never divide on that, obviously. No one does, but hypothetically. I mean, even among... That's right. That's the Spirit's way of saying, let's not talk about that anymore. Um, Get off of politics. Hey, politics and religion, here we are. Um, That's funny. Thank you, Lynn. I'm going to go twice as long because he said that. Um, You know what, though? We do allow... Because of our making and exalting to the level of king these secondary issues, we do allow these things to divide us. We've held what we perceive to be a lot of cultural power for a long time. It's very hard to have those things challenged. I see it in my own heart, too. You know, this last week, 
confession time, I guess. Um, you know, I said some things to someone I really care about that weren't very kind. I don't know if you've ever done that in any of your relationships. Husbands, wives, ever let some words slip that as they were slipping, you realized, oh no, there they go, and I can't get them back. As much as I want to just stand back from that and go like, what the heck, man, where, where did that come from? Where is that coming? Well, it's coming from, Jesus says, the overflow of the heart the mouth speaks. That there's little, little fears and insecurities and stuff that's bound deep. There's a sinner who's saved by grace who still wrestles with his sin. There's the need to confess and be reconciled because I'm not the Christ. There's the need to be drawn back again and again to the new king and his kingdom. So this is Mark's gentle nudge to us. Who is this Jesus and what will you do with him? Because a new king is coming and he's not just coming out there hypothetically. He's coming for you and he knows you by name. For those who reject the king, there's deep sadness in that. But for those who say, yes, you are my king, Grow me, love me, help me, change me, use me. There's unspeakable joy when we hear the announcement of John the Baptist that help is on the way in your life, in mine. Help is on the way because a new king is coming for you. And I just want to look at three things that relate to this in our text. The first thing Mark does is he gives us a map, a map to this new king and his kingdom. Mark begins his gospel, verse 1, and this is the only time that Mark is going to speak to us to tell us what's happening. He's going to spend the rest of his gospel presenting historical salient facts to show us, allure us, persuade us, and pursue us with the love and power of King Jesus. But he begins with this intro, this four-punch intro. See it again. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So here's the map. Here's where we're going. Here's how you get to the new king and his kingdom. The first thing you should notice is the beginning. Mark begins by taking us all the way back to Genesis 1. And the original hearers would have seen it immediately. In the beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now there's a new beginning. Now there is the coming of the king who will one day wipe every tear from our eyes and bring a new heavens and a new earth. Something new is happening. This isn't just another religion. I mean, that's what the, that's what the Greeks and Romans thought. They're like, this is fine, whatever, Christianity, whoop-de-doo. We got all kinds of house religions. We got these guys, we got the Gnostics, you know, we put up with the Jews, you know, whatever. Okay, start a new one. It's not a new religion. It's not a collection of wise sayings to, you know, for, that could be sold for $29.99 and $10 more in Canada in the self-help section. So what is it? Well, it's good news. We use the word gospel a lot. We love that word. The gospel, the pronouncement, the announcement. Gospel means good news. Good news proclaimed. Good news with content to it. So gospel isn't just, you know, a, a Christianese word that we just kind of insert for fun all the time because it sounds fancy. There's something behind it. When you think of gospel, here's what I want you to think about. Paul Revere. Remember that guy? 
What did he say? The British are coming. That's right. So Paul Revere wasn't just, you know, riding his horse around New England being like, hey, anybody want to sit down, have some coffee, do a Bible study, maybe get into some theology, read a philosophy book? How's that sound? He had an announcement to proclaim. One that if you listened to it or didn't listen to it, carried, carried with a great consequences. If you hear the British are coming and you do nothing, that's very different than if you hear and do something and organize and prepare yourself to, to fight and protect. That's what we mean when we talk about gospel. The Greek word euangelion, which you're now free to use at your next dinner party. The Greek word euangelion means good news. And in the Greek of Jesus' day, it was a term that was related to the category of historical reporting. So it wasn't someone who'd been really spiritual, you know, and, and done a weekend-long silent retreat who came back to announce all the things they felt. It was historical facts that have happened and are happening that you need to know. For the Greeks, it often was used in the context of a big event. For example, if they won a battle, they would send someone running back to Rome as a gospel messenger, an announcer of the victory, or perhaps at the installment of a new emperor. So what's the content of this good news for us? Well, it's this, that after 400 years of silence and waiting and wanting and longing, and how is Yahweh going to come and fulfill his promises? Because it looks pretty dark, and he's been pretty silent. And there's Roman oppression, and everybody's trying to make their own way. The zealots are going to use their swords. The Pharisees are going to add laws. The Sadducees are going to work with the you know, political establishment and sidle up to Herod. And the Essenes are going to go out into the desert and you know, purify themselves 83 times a day. What's the content of this good news? It is that after all of this time, Yeshua, Jesus, the Lord saves. He's coming. He's coming to do what he promised he would do for you. He's coming to help. He hasn't left you alone. And who is coming to save? Which Yeshua? Well, the Christos, which is the Greek word for the Messiah. The Messiah is coming. God's special messenger is coming to fulfill the promises of God and save once and for all his people. Now, when Israel hears this, they, like us, have such confused and mismanaged expectations. You think they had grown a little bit from the days of Saul, wanting for themselves a really tall, good-looking, muscular, strategic leader who had done at least 17 weekends with Stephen Covey and was, you know, Robert Drucker's cousin. Because that's what we look for. That's the kind of leader we look for. They expected a you know, a sword-swinging braveheart who would come in and overthrow Roman oppression, a royal figure who would, like the Pharisees, keep all the laws and the extra laws and the laws about those laws. But God surprises us. He loves to surprise us. He especially loves to surprise our religious pretensions our religious expectations of what we think and feel like he should do because obviously that's what we would do. And so John tacks on these three words at the end that would have caused the original readers to stop in their tracks because they could understand a new beginning. That made sense. You know, Yeshua, Christos, we get all that. But uh-oh, 
He's the Son of God. An Old Testament title. An Old Testament title tied closely with Daniel's use of the Son of Man, but especially in the major prophets, Son of God used to refer to the divine king. So we don't just have some, you know, man writ large, Iron Man with the sword and Braveheart Jewish paint coming down to like take out the Romans. We've got something altogether different. We have God himself. We have the eternal divine son, king. This is the one that Mark gives us a roadmap to. And this is why Mark is on such a mission. Because this is new. This is different than help yourself, fix yourself, try harder, save yourself. Or if you get bored with all that institutional religion, which you should, then just go out and pursue power and pleasure for goodness sake because you only get one life to live and you're about to die. No, Mark would show us the full power of King Jesus doing a new thing. His map leads to real treasure. And the real treasure is the second point. Our story with the king. Our map to the king, Mark's intro, leads to the story. The story is, look, Isaiah chapter 40. At the end of Isaiah 39, God's people have experienced judgment. Exile has been promised. They're fearful. They're trembling. They're worried. And then Isaiah 40 comes onto the scene. Our call to worship. Thus says the Lord, comfort, comfort my people. I will not leave them alone. You see, Jesus coming to the world wasn't somehow for Israel or for us plan B. This was God's plan all along. Human beings sinned in Adam, are therefore by nature sinners and therefore do sin, by which I mean we miss the mark, we want to be our own king, we worship false kings, we want to be our own God. And God's plan from the beginning had been to redeem a new people for himself in a second Adam, that is Jesus, his son. And so Mark tells us, look, it's already been written. Isaiah already told you folks what's going to happen. Someone's going to come, the new Elijah, and they are going to announce the Messiah, and there is going to be a way that is prepared and made straight in the wilderness. So even when we meet John the Baptist, he comes onto the scene as if there's a new exodus. God's people being brought to a new Mount Sinai. He was Christ himself, brought out of and through the wilderness that they once more might cross the Jordan into the promised land. But this time, the promised land isn't a place in particular, but faith and hope in a person. You will not be exiles forever. And so the Lord gives us a messenger, John. And I love John because John is the kind of guy that if he walked up into this church, a lot of us would be like, I don't know, that guy looks weird. And he did. Why in the world did he dress up in this crazy outfit? You know, is this some sort of like ancient Jewish doomsday prepper thing going on? I mean, what's John the Baptist doing with camel's hair and locusts and honey? This messenger is different because the king is different. And John's dress tells us at least two things. One, he's uniting himself to the way the prophets of old would have looked. But secondly, he is in some sense being intentional about pushing against the power of the religious establishment. And that is what the gospel must always do. And I was talking to a brother in the service before this, and he goes, you know, Jesus was wild. He was so gentle and lowly and meek and kind, and yet the same Jesus goes into the temple with the money changers, and, and the gospel says he fashioned a whip. 
And, and this guy looked at me, he goes, well, do we ever do that? I mean, is there ever a place to do that, you know, in our day and age? Fashion a whip? I said, yeah, that's exactly what we do every Sunday. That's what Martin Luther talks about. Every time the gospel of the king coming is proclaimed in a new kingdom, in a new polis, in a new reality, a new worldview breaking in around the world, that's Jesus fashioning a whip. Who does he use it against? The needy, the lowly, the broken, the tax collector, the prostitute, the drunkard? No. They know their need, and they come to him in their need, and he meets them with grace and changes them, and they turn from sin to Jesus. The whip gets fashioned for all of us who have hidden and latent within our own souls self-righteousness. The worst, smelliest kind of pride, religious pride. The whip that Jesus fashions is for those who have taken over the temple and are basically selling indulgences so that you can get to God. They've created a den of liars and money changers in a house of prayer. The very thing we are so prone to do in our own self-righteousness and our own souls. That's why John comes onto the scene as a messenger we wouldn't expect with a message that is just a sweet aroma to the people around him. Because the burden not only of Rome is heavy upon them, but the burden of the law. The burden of Rome is heavy. You know, when is God going to come and overthrow these oppressors? But so is the burden of the law. You know, do better, try harder. Here's Torah. Oh, by the way, we added 420 laws to Torah. Hope you can keep those. And so when John comes out into the desert, to the Jordan, he says, come and be washed, be cleansed. Turn from all the things in your life that can't save or satisfy and turn to God. Be washed, be cleaned, turn. And John's offer was for everyone. It says all went out. I mean, Mark's using hyperbole. It literally wasn't every person, but every kind of person all the way down to Jerusalem came out because they were hungry for this kind of freedom. This kind of freedom comes from the gospel. We're told that it's for the forgiveness of sins. The idea of for there means in preparation for. You see, these, these Jews were much smarter than we often are. They knew that the water of the Jordan wasn't somehow going to, you know, change their life magically. They're going to go back to their homes and their lives and their works and their wives and their husbands and kids, and they'll still face plenty of challenges. But they wanted to be prepared symbolically for the Lord to show up. And the way to do that wasn't to, you know, pursue more of a track of religion, but instead to say, I'm, I need a new king. I need God's help. I can't wash and clean myself in my own strength. And I think we would do well to follow their example, to know that our story is with the new king because there are so many false narratives around us about what it means to be whole, to be human, to be saved, to be loved, to be enough. And if it weren't bad enough that those things are all out there trying to sell us something, I don't know about you, but I, I can get the whispers going in my own head. And often the devil would mock us with lies. We're not loved. We're not forgiven. We're not enough in Christ, united to Christ. There's condemnation right around the next corner after your next screw-up. That's why it's so important that Mark would show us and connect us to the promises of Isaiah 40. 
God is connecting his king, his new king to his story. And in the sending of the king, he's connecting us to the story. Which leads us finally to the grace of the king. There's really just two things you need to see here that are pretty astounding. First of all, that John the Baptist says he's not unworthy. He's not worthy to untie the sandal of this king. That, that should shock us because no good Jewish man would ever do that anyway. <laughs> you, you just didn't do that. You didn't bow down and stoop down and get your hands dirty when someone came into your home to untie their sandal and wash their feet. And John says, this king is so great and so powerful and so good, I'm not even worthy to be a servant like that. He's the king of the universe, the son of God. But where do we get surprised by grace in that? Not in John's sense of his own unworthiness, no. But in the very fact that it would be Jesus Christ himself who would stoop down, who would take the lowly form of a servant, who as it were metaphorically stoops down to untie your sandal, to serve you that you might be brought into his house and his kingdom. The grace of the king. There's no conditions here. What about my past? What about my screw-ups? What about everything I've done and thought and said? Yeah, he knows it all. And God still chose that this new king would be the stooping king. But it doesn't end there. Because the king who stoops also has the power to save. You can wash and cleanse and bathe like the Essenes did in the desert five, seven, ten times a day. You can whip yourself and beat yourself up, be a good penitente. You see, you know, I mean, we, we make fun of that, but then we all, we all do that in our own way. Or you can fold your arms and say, I don't need any of that because I'm actually doing pretty good. Thank you very much. Look at my life. And yet this king comes to not baptize with water, not with anything temporary, not with anything symbolic, not with anything that washes on and off, but with the very power of the Holy Spirit to declare at once that only God can save you and simultaneously that he does. He does. He gives us new hearts. He raises us up from the dead. He takes a heart of stone and makes it a heart of flesh, not because of anything we deserve or have done or because we're so lovely to him, because it is his will and power to set his love on the unlovely. And in that, the declaration of the new king becomes to us and the question of who is this king becomes to us one of great joy. He is my Lord. He is my savior. He's my friend. He's my helper. I'm never alone and I'm free. I'm free now to be filled with the spirit and to go into Santa Fe amidst the challenges and, and the frustrations and people and all the things and go declare this message. There's hope. There's love. There's a better way. There's a new king for you. And help is truly on the way. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this introduction to Mark's gospel. We just, um, I don't know, I praise you for the depth of it and the map and all these things to contemplate. May we be in some ways like Mary was, you know, hiding up and treasuring all these things in her heart and just thinking about, wow, what, what glory? Who is this king that's 
Yeshua and the Christos and the Son of God and the new Genesis. So what a beautiful thing that you unite us to that story. That the story of the new king is the story of us being made new, new creations in Christ, not just once, but by your grace ongoing. We need you every hour. And finally, I thank you that Mark points our eyes to the beautiful and scandalous and surprising nature of grace right out of the gate. And it will be that grace all the way down, unmerited favor, undeserved mercy, that the king comes, we're not even worthy to bow down and serve him, and yet he bows down to serve us. We couldn't imagine meeting a king or a president or or anyone of high stature who would come into the room and bow down to serve us. And Jesus, you bow down that you might lift us up. And not lift us up with temporary water, but with the baptism of the Spirit, which turns hearts of stone to flesh. So I pray as we come to this table, those realities will be true and near to us by faith. We come, Jesus, putting our faith and our trust in you, whether we've had a great week or a bad week, strong faith or weak faith, our trust is in you. Feed us. Thank you, King, that you have invited us to the victory banquet and celebration, to the spoils of all you have accomplished. Death itself has been put to death. So feed and nourish us here, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.